Hey there and welcome to Pick and Drive Rugby Podcast. We are two die-hard rugby fans having a weekly chat about all things Aussie rugby. Real, family-friendly, positive. Get involved. Oh yeah. So welcome to episode nine, titled Kearns, the King of the Castle. Um, I'm here, Ando, with my podcast co-host, Mitch. How are you, mate? I'm good. How um, How's your week been so far, Ando? My week has been better because it's a new week, it's a new day, it's a new dawn, (laughs) and I feel like both of us finished the week on a really bad note. Last week? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Last week had some interesting news come out, so I think we've gotten over the the hurdle and we're starting to look at the... The future of Australian rugby and what it will potentially look like. So yeah, I'm not sure how much I'm over the hurdle though, because like <laughs> it's it's actually been annoying me a little bit about a lot of the kind of podcasts and the articles that I'm taking in. A lot of people are talking, okay, the sacking of Raylene Castle has happened. It's we can't change it. Let's move on. And there's there's this really strong part of me that actually just wants to kind of I'm not sure if mourn is the right word, but just almost bitch about the or i'm not sure if i should say that but about <laughs> in the injustice of the entire thing yeah um th- there's this part of me that's still really feeling frustrated about the entire situation that's gone on so i mean we, we texted back and forth a fair bit was that your feeling on friday night i got so angry when i heard the news it's just the complete wrong decision but we will get to that and i <laughs> i've been having waves come sometimes i like okay it, we'll get through this and other times I'm just like, where, why again, we're back in this situation again. Um, Burn it all down, start again, or yeah, exactly. we can do this. It's okay. <laughs> so depending on the minute at the moment, you kind of catch me on and see what my <laughs> mood is. Well, why don't we move on to our social media platforms, Mitch? Yeah. So we have an Instagram page. You can follow us at hashtag pick underscore drive underscore rugby. We've got a Facebook page. We're at pick and drive rugby podcast. And if you're on Twitter, we'd like to hear from you at at pick underscore drive rugby. Awesome. Thanks, mate. So tonight, we're obviously going to be talking in a fair bit of depth about everything happening with Rugby Australia and the sacking of Raylene Castle. Um, There are a few other news points around at the moment. Nothing massive, but a couple of things we will touch on. And then we thought it'd be fun to have a bit of positivity at the end of the pod. We're going to have a brief chat about the Bledisloe Cup in 2010 in Hong Kong, where we beat the Kiwis, where we came from behind in the last few minutes of the game to steal and win in a meaningless dead rubber against the Kiwis. So, um, Mitch, you and I both watched it. You looking forward to chatting about the game? Yeah, it's been a it's a different uh, perspective looking at this game from ten years ago as to where we currently find ourselves now. Um, I think I'm definitely looking forward to having a chat about it and talking about the intricacies of the game and the team lineups and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, it'll be good. Awesome. Well, let's jump into it, and we're going to start off by talking about Raylene Castle and Rugby Australia. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> For our first segment this week, we go- we're going to dive into the spicy news. Now this. A big segment to talk about this week with some massive news that has come out on Thursday with Raylene Castle stepping down as CEO of Rugby Australia. Big news, lots to talk about. I don't think this is something we particularly saw coming. What's your thoughts about this one, Ando? Well, I was just really upset. Um, I am a person who really likes in what I kind of see is the right, I want the right thing to be done within a situation. Um, I want people to be treated in a way that shows kind of respect and shows a bit of dignity. And I think that in so much of the, 
um, in so much of the communication and everything that's been happening around Railing Castle and Rugby Australia, it hasn't been one of kind of respect and acknowledgement of what she is trying to do or has done for the game. And so this kind of late night departure on a Thursday evening after a letter has been made publicly available by 10 Australian captains, blah, 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 blah. Like, it, it's all just messy and dirty, yep. and I don't think it's treated Raylene Castle or whoever it was, any CEO, in a way that shows any level of respect or dignity. I think the, fr- the f- biggest point for me that frustrated me the most was that, yet again, this is another situation where rugby has handled the big stuff poorly. Yeah. So it's it's the same as with losing coaches over the last few years with Robbie Deans, um, Michael Checker. They all sort of left in bad ways. It was Ewan McKenzie happy, as well. Yep. Ewan McKenzie, um, Bill Pulver, Railing Castle now. Like the whole sort of last ten years of rugby administration has not been ideal. Mm-hmm. And it just seems that everything that we do as an organization gets handled badly. Yeah. And that's that was the biggest frustration for me. As you said before, it was not a clean departure. There was no respect shown towards Railing Castle. There was no respect shown towards Rugby Australia from her like both parties just seem to have come to a point where they've split and they've both left in the most, I guess, aggressive way that they could. Yeah. Yeah, and I think Part of the problem is, I mean, if we look at the events that that preceded her resignation, you can specifically point to the letter that the ex-Wallabies captains put together and made publicly. Like, they, they from, from the sounds of what came out publicly, they had not had the direct communication with RA and they just wrote this letter but then made it an open letter. And it was calling yeah. for the resignation of Raylene Castle and it was calling for a big um, change in the leadership of Rugby Australia. Yeah. And the problem with it was is that, okay, you can have an opinion about what changes you think need to get made in, in Australian rugby because it is not in a good state. And before Raylene Castle's resignation, it was not in a good state. Before the COVID-19 pandemic, it was not in a good state. But you're, everyone is allowed to have an opinion on that. But the the, re, the way in which you make that opinion um, legitimate, in my opinion, is by having constructive ideas on what can change or what could be done to improve the situation at hand, right? Yep. And that letter from the captains called for the resignation and had next to no solid idea on what could actually be done to improve Australian rugby. It was like, oh, let's change the leadership and then everything will be better for Australian rugby. And it was just, it was so um, almost naive in what it was trying to achieve that it just seemed like a beat up job. And it's like, cool, let's write this letter so we can get her sacked. Well, then to what end? And that, that was also a real part of the frustration for me. Supposedly, Paul McLean, the um, RA chairman, was saying that that letter did not have a direct impact upon the sacking. Yeah. Um, or sorry, the resignation of Raylene Castle. But uh, I just find that really hard to follow, considering the kind of the fact that it was released a couple of days before she ends up, the board supposedly only then loses, doesn't support or loses faith in her. Yeah. Like, I just, I don't understand how that all works. 
the emergence of the letter initially, it had such a Fox Sports sort of tinge and push and backing that it really seemed like a play at the media rights more so than um, a legitimate attack at Rugby mm. Australia, um, uh, Rugby Australia presidency or CEO or leadership. So when this came out, I wasn't, I honestly didn't think that this would mean that Raylan Castle would resign because as you yeah. said before, what was said in there was just broad ideas and broad terms that really weren't all that constructive. Like we need to put more money into grassroots. Well, yes, we do, but how are we going to do that? Where's that money going to come from? We need to get rid of the board. Well, that hasn't happened. We need to get rid of Raylene Castle. Well, do we need to get rid of Raylene Castle or do we need to get a new CEO? Um, it was very personal in that it went mm -hmm. after Castle, that we didn't go after the position of leadership. Um, and just the fact that the way that it played out in that um, the board members, the way that they acted towards this and how like so they had a meeting on thursday evening or thursday afternoon which railing castle was supposed to be going to which was a official uh, overview of the 2019 financial situation she was as i take it due to the current situation it was a zoom call and at the last minute railing castle was uninvited from that call and wasn't present it's like schoolyard politics man no you can't come to my party exactly it just sounds like that anyway. And Raylene Castle had even filmed an interview with Channel 7, uh, with ABC 7.30 report to be aired Thursday night or Friday night. She'd filmed that earlier in the day saying that she, she knows rugby's in a bad situation, but she had a plan to get out of it. Mm -hmm. And then comes out a number of hours later and says, I'm standing down as CEO. It's just, it's so, he said, she said, it's so... It's not a united front. It's the board versus Raylene Castle. It's members of the rugby community against the administration of the game yet again. And it's just, it's such a messy process and it's left yep. the game in, in the worst possible way that it could have happened. See, part of the problem within this whole whole situation is that um, we're, we're getting back into this social issue where there needs to be the polarisation of any type of debate or conversation that goes on. So you either are a lefty do-gooder democratic person who really, really loves Raylene Castle and thinks that she's a bee's knees and was the messiah of Australian rugby, or you're kind of like some over old boy, blazer-wearing, probably live in Mossman, um, rah-rah, reactionary person who can't handle a woman running the game and just wants to get rid Like, it seems that you're either supposedly one extreme or the other. And that's the thing I'm finding really, really frustrating about a lot of the kind of online commentary and, or, or online debate surrounding this whole issue is that people aren't, aren't, aren't accepting the nuance of the situation. And I've there was one particular, um, I should, you should just never look at Facebook posts or Facebook comments <laughs> ever. But um, a person that I know responded to an article about the resignation of Raylene Castle. And this is a person that I know is incredibly intelligent, a very capable businessman, and is a good person, like good person, right? And he jumps onto this comment and just blasts, like says, good good riddance, she's ruining the game, rugby will do better without her, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, what 
are you talking about? How can you just have this, uh, like, only negative perception of Raelian Castle? Like, I'm not saying you need to love it to pieces, but I think that you can recognise the limitations that she brought to the role whilst also recognise the challenges that she faced and then also recognise the good things that she did as well yeah. and have it as a complex idea rather than know she was a horrific person that should never have got the role and did a horrible job. Like, it's it's just boggles my mind how... People just want to have these narratives or these diatribes that they just they just pursue and will not listen to reason. Maybe I'm being naive about what I hope for people, but that's what we're seeing in a lot of the conversation about this. Uh, similar to what you, you just said, a lot of the things that I have read and seen and spoken to people about since the news broke last week is that, you know, Raylene Castle was bad for the game and needed to go. But when you actually start asking those questions back and say, well, why was she bad? What was what was mm-hmm. so? What did she do that was so bad for the game? Oh, well, um, oh, she um, she didn't handle the Falau thing well. Well, okay, yeah, she didn't handle that so well, but no one did in that situation. That yeah. whole situation was handled horribly by the Waratahs as well as the AIU. So I wouldn't say that it was just Raylan Castle that handled that situation badly, and. That's kind yeah. of where it falls yeah. when you sort of push any further. Oh, well, you know, there needs to be more money in grassroots. There needs to be, you know, poor people t- attending games and things. It's like, well, yes, but that is a, a game. That was a game problem that was around before Castle came in. That wasn't something that she was specifically yep. known for or it increased or decreased. Like, the frustrating thing is that no one is actually acknowledging the good things that she did in the role and yep. is just saying that it's so good that she's gone. This is the best thing. Now, I don't know if that has come about because of the sort of um, anti-Castle media that was being sort of perpetrated by Fox Sports weeks leading up to her resignation. I don't know if people have just been so used to hearing the the articles and the news reports that you know, rugby needs to be signing its contracts, uh, its uh, broadcast contract and the things that Fox Sports were saying. I don't know if people have just gotten used to that and taken that in and said, well, yeah, obviously she's bad. She needs to go. Yeah. yeah. But, it's, yeah. I just, mate, you, you spoke about the Falau thing there and that brings me, like... I just want to address a couple of points about Raylene Castle's tenure well, within her role. So basically, she took over and had three, she inherited or had, had three major issues that no other, um, no other, CEO. sorry, is the role CEO? Yeah, cool. Sorry, yeah. I just had a brain Yeah, fade, I, like, was, I was doing that earlier. It's like <laughs> president, um, no. That no other CEO had had to cover. So firstly, Checker, Michael Checker. He undoubtedly was a passionate man that cared cared about Australian rugby and cared about the Wallabies and gave his all. However, his lack of success in many, uh, his lack of success in any other national setup, in my opinion, probably would have resulted in him being asked to resign or sacked uh, well before he did, probably 18 months prior to the 2019 World Cup, 12 or 18 months out. Okay. Um, So I'm going to come back to that. Secondly, she had the Falau thing. 
where that just blew up. Couldn't have expected it. It's the first in Australian rugby history that there has been a religious uh, communication within a sports player slash code of conduct. So I, like Rugby Australia had to deal with that for the first time ever. Rugby League has dealt with a whole bunch of other issues, sometimes around substance abuse, sometimes around domestic violence, sometimes around other issues, but not about freedom of speech, religious rights, that kind of thing. Nobody's well, no, to... no one has. Like That was an unprecedented incident. Yep. No other sport, no other organisation. I, I don't remember... Re- hearing something is so broad in the uh, in the media of, of an, a case that of this kind of thing happening. Exactly. And so that, that's the second point of a major issue that she had to face. And then the third one is a global pandemic that shuts down the entire competition. Like, in what way can you possibly blame the CEO for that happening? You, you obviously can't. And so I just want to speak, if we can, do you mind if we just go through Checker, Falau, COVID, and kind of speak to each one of those? And the COVID is kind of tied into broadcasting issues as well. So yeah. Michael I think Checker. what we should do, yeah. we'll go yeah. through those th- those points that you said, and then we'll talk about what we thought were her best parts, her yeah, positives. Okay, cool. yep. So we'll do those, yeah. Cool. So I'll, I'll go Checker, I'll say the negative, negative stuff, and then um, we'll say what she did do. So Michael Checker had a one of the lowest win-loss ratios of any Wallabies coach of any era, okay? Um, he His highlight probably was probably the 2015 World Cup where we obviously got to the final. Uh, and then from there, apart from some positive performances here and there, generally it was a bit of a downhill trend. So the quality of the team never really reached the peaks of 2015. Yep. And there were a lot of people calling for the head of Michael Checker But the big problem from my understanding of it was that Rugby Australia did not have the money to be able to pay him out of the contract if they terminated it early. And I've also read when um, I've read in a few articles that he actually had a clause inserted into that contract that upped the amount that he had to get paid if his contract was terminated early. So that's the situation she found herself in. needing to get rid of a coach but not being able to afford to get rid of that coach so what did she do do you know (laughs) what did she do what did Uh, she do i I don't know what structures did she put in place oh so she brought in um scott johnson yeah so she brought in the director of australian rugby she made a new role that sort of uh, we haven't seen this sort of position in australian rugby before created a role where we had someone that stood above the uh, the coach, the head coach, and sort of managed the whole structure of Australian rugby that managed the super rugby sides collaborating with the Wallabies and then yep. collaborating between the board. I do Correct. know. I do know. Yeah, good, you do. Now, <laughs> that's, that's definitely what she did. She put in a – so she recognised that she couldn't get rid of Checker. And this is my understanding of the financial issues and how that influenced her decision-making process. So she can't get rid of Checker. Uh, so what does she do? Well, she tries to put some structures in place to give him more support within his role. Now, you can either interpret that decision of putting Scott Johnson in as supporting him or putting someone in over the top to boss him around and micromanage him. 
I choose to see that as a supporting role, um, particularly in the framework of he asked as well to have extended pre-tournament uh, pre training camps with the Wallaby squad at particular locations around the world, which are really expensive and quite long. And the Rugby Australia paid for that and allowed that to happen. So that's another piece of evidence showing support for Michael Checker. Recognises that she can't get rid of him, so what does she do? puts in these things to try and enable him to put away all of the alignment of super rugby teams with the Wallabies, worrying about kind of under 20s alignment, whatever, and just you focus on the Wallabies. Your job is Wallabies. Scott Johnson deals with everything else. Yeah. And so I don't know what else she could do in that situation. And people are like, oh, she should have sacked Checker. You, you can't make that decision if you don't have the money to sack him. Question though. Yeah. By making that role... Do you think it was cheaper to bring Scott Johnson in in that position than it was to sack Checker? It, it must have been. It must, A, it yeah. must have been. But we don't know how much Scott Johnson's getting paid. Exactly. And we don't know the specific figures for how much he would have got paid out. Yeah. Um, so in my mind, like, the, it would just make sense. If you're having to pay, plus Scott Johnson's role is ongoing and has a broader remit than just replacing the coach. Um, One of the other things as well that that, um, that appointment addressed was there was a lot of talk at the time that Checker was being sort of biased as a coach in his selections yep. and that there was players that weren't getting a fair uh, representation in the Wallaby squad. So by bringing in Scott Johnson, there was another sort of clear head voice on the selection panel and yep. they actually set up a completely independent selection panel, mm. which um, wasn't the case before. Prior to that, Checker was responsible and his coaching team were responsible for selecting the teams with this new setup checker was part of it then scott johnson and there was i think two other representatives and i can't remember off the top of my head where they yep. came from yep. um but they created this sort of independent coaching selection panel um i don't know if i'd say it worked any better or worse than <laughs> prior our in our performances didn't particularly improve but it that was another thing that she did bring in Let's move now, because I think we've spoken about that point. In my yep. opinion, she couldn't have done anything different about getting rid of Checker, and it is illogical and unfair to say, well, she just should have sacked him anyway. That's ignoring their financial realities, and you just you just can't ignore that. Exactly. Um, now, Falau. A lot of the, the problem with the Falau decision is that it is so wound up in religious rights, freedom of speech, that basically if you're a right-wing Christian you believe that Falau was in the right and Castle was in the wrong. Yep. Uh, or when I say right-wing, I should say conservative Christian. That's a more appropriate phrase there. Um, and if you are not Christian, generally, and these are generalisations, um, then you think that she probably did the right thing. The problem was that basically after the first tweet that he made, RA and Izzy Falau had long meetings about it. They went through and spoke, and he agreed not to do it again. And, like... He agreed, gave her a hug, and said, "I'm sorry, I won't do that again." And if I and if my I'll beliefs get in the way of what's happening, if my beliefs start to damage Australian rugby, I will walk away from the game. Is yep. what he said to her, and it's well reported that he said that. Yep. And then he does it again, and then he does it again, and then people get up at her for um, either extending his contract or allowing him to play again after the first time or for punishing him the second time. I don't see how she's meant to win in this situation. 
one bit of information that I don't know particularly if it was correct that was sort of circulating at the time was that Railing Castle said that she had f- changed his contract to introduce a clause mm-hmm. that if he did something like this, she would have greater freedom, but she didn't do that. Yeah, which is where we found ourselves in the situation we were last time. That yep. uh, at the second time, when when he did do it again, and when we sort of found this ourselves back in that same situation, Rugby Australia weren't able to say, "Well, we put a clause in your contract that said if you did this again, you're gone." Yeah, he came out and said, "You just said we we had an agreement. I said that I wouldn't do it again. We shook on it and we left it at that." Yep, but there was no proof. Yeah, and look. There's going to be a lot of nitty-gritty that yeah. just won't ever come out because of the non-disclosure agreement about That's the right. final settlement that they reached and a lot of the discussions there. But if, if we think back to Izzy's status at that point of this all going down, he was the pin-up poster boy of Australian rugby. He was, without a doubt, the best back within Australian rugby yeah. and the most damaging back three player, one of the best players in the world, if not the best fullback in the world. And obviously he had limitations to his game, like his passing was pretty crap and he couldn't kick particularly well. But on the ball... Argentina. <laughs> on the ball, attacking, damaging rugby, uh, he, he was unstoppable, yeah. basically. And so imagine the outcry if she'd sacked him after the first time. It, it just would have been even worse. And so I just... I struggle when people say that Railing Castle did a rubbish job because she didn't handle the Falau situation better. There, there could have been some things to do better, but she got a verbal agreement, a handshake from the player guaranteeing that it wouldn't happen again. And basically, and I just, obviously you could have put in something extra about like a written element to it, but they already had the code of conduct in place as well that they could have been referring to too. So there's probably a bunch more legal matters that people more well-versed in the legal side of things could be bringing to the case here. But all I want to say is it's a tricky situation that I think people sometimes unfairly slam Castle on because of their con the context and the preconceived perspectives that they bring into the conversation. Yeah, it didn't, it didn't, it wasn't handled well, the whole situation, but in saying that, it wasn't all. It wasn't solely Raylene Castle's responsibility to stop Falau from doing that. Now, both times that he sent those tweets out, he was playing Super Rugby for the Waratahs. Mm. Now, why were the Waratahs not monitoring his social media more closely if they knew that this was potentially a case that had happened in the past? They said that he wouldn't do it again, but he did. He did it in a bye week. It, it, he basically mirrored the same situation previously. Mm-hmm. Why was why were the Waratahs not monitoring that more closely? So I, I think that there's some some blame also needs to fall on their administration as opposed to Raylene Castle as well. Yep. Okay. Yeah, I understand that. I mean, I, I think my immediate focus is like, at what point does a company have the right to monitor your social media usage or to direct the way in which you definitely use your social media? Um, and that's a broader conversation we don't need to get into today. Yeah, definitely. Um, 
So why don't we move on then to the final point of kind of issues that people slam Castle for that were unprecedented. So one, we've got Checker, two, Flower, third, COVID-19, global pandemic. Um, supposedly, according to a fair few journos, some on a raw, some on actually Fox Sports, I've been reading as well, um, Railing Castle was one week out from brokering a new deal with, uh, I think it was a combined deal with Optus and Channel 10. They were going to be doing a combined package with digital rights and free-to-air content as well. It was going to be for a greater amount than what Fox Sports, supposedly, it was going to be for a greater amount than what Fox Sports had offered the second time around. Yeah. So then then a pandemic strikes and Australia's obviously, in, rugby Australia is obviously impacted by the lack of revenue that's coming in. So... I don't know. She's just been in this situation where thing after thing after thing has come. Yeah. I, um, I, at the time when she sort of declined Fox sports initial offer and took the rights to market, she was getting applauded by most people in the rugby community for being courageous and, and sort of doing something that no other CEO had done, um, by giving, the sport a little bit more wiggle room and a little bit more option to to change and to to improve so at the time she was being supported for doing that and it's very hypocritical that now people are coming up and, and using this as an excuse as, as to why she should have been sacked and and legitimizing her her resignation mm. when it was mm -hmm. the best thing that could have happened yep yeah i mean i um i had a bit of an interesting back and forth with Ben Kimber from the Rugby Ruckus. So he has a background in journalism, obviously was a sports writer for a while. Yep. And he, on the most recent Rugby, Rugby Ruckus podcast, was talking about um, the way in which journalists don't just make up stories. They are going to be getting information and sources that are given to them, and they're also getting told what to write to. So there's an element to which a journalist is kind of told what to do. My question to him, though, was at what point... So let's say these journalists are getting information from insiders saying that supposedly the board is losing faith with rugby, with Railing Castle, or that um, Railing Castle within the next two weeks is going to go. And they're getting it from people who are highly placed within rugby circles within Australia. Just because they're getting told that information, A, does that mean it's true and B, does that mean that they have the kind of ethical responsibility to be uh, to be reporting on that information? Because at what point does the reporting of a potential event cause that event to happen? Mm. So my kind of analogy that I gave within a chat with him was um, it's kind of like the, the uh, Oracle scene within the Matrix when Neo goes and sees the Oracle <laughs> and he first walks into the kitchen and the Oracle's like, oh, and don't worry about the vase. And he says, what vase? Turns around and knocks it over. And the whole thing is like, what do you have knocked it over? Well, would Raylene Castle have been sacked if there hadn't been this negative news campaign about her from supposed inside sources? Yeah. Like it's, oh, it's, it's something that we'll never know the answer to. But I just think that with everything that's gone on, there's this level of culpability from the journalists and the news organisations that have been putting out these negative articles about rugby in Australia and Railing Castle that I hope does not just get washed away. Yep. 
Everybody's talking about, oh, this is a brand new day. We now need to be looking forward. We need to unite and look forward for the bright, positive future for Australian rugby. We need to change up the systems, get out of Super Rugby, change Super Rugby, get out of Sanzar, change that, like, whatever. I'm thinking, hang on a sec, no. Can we just, like, wallow in the crap that's gone on and recognise the fact that there has been this campaign that has achieved what it set out to? And what does that say about the future? What if Phil Kearns becomes CEO? And then down a track, people don't like him. Do we have a negative campaign in two years and just axe him in two years' time? One would hope. (laughs) One would hope. But do you see my point here? My point of at what point do we need to recognise that there is something inherently wrong in the way that commentary and discussion and discourse is happening within a rugby community and recognise that needs to change? Yeah. I think a lot of... um what we can look at in this situation is where that information is coming from, not necessarily the sources, but the outlet. So yeah. Fox sports gen has do in this situation, Fox sports has an agenda that they're playing to. They want to keep the rights to rugby because if they lose those rights, they shut down um, 30, 40% of their business as a whole, their sector, but then the Fox sports rugby sector completely goes. So that media outlet who is writing articles and making podcasts and doing the uh, match day commentary and everything, they're all out of jobs. So I can understand where they're coming from in a situation of, well, we're going to create as much um, angst in the community against Railing Castle so that people are more aligned to take our garbage and think that (laughs) we're the saviors here. Um, But then when you look at sort of the independence, whether it be the raw or um, the various different rugby blogs around the, the world. The Guardian has been putting out a fair bit of good content about this, although me simply mentioning the words The Guardian will have a lot of people offside. But anyway, moving on. Yeah, so it just it's interesting to see where it's actually coming from. Now, I have seen most of the commentary coming out of the Raw is very positive. It's very much anti-Murdoch, um, anti-Fox Sports, and it's very much aligned with rugby's sort of future and and greater good being put forward. I don't necessarily think that the other newspaper articles are, um, or newspaper outlets, like the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age and those kinds of outlets are probably being as unbiased as they could be just Mm. because they're trying to sell papers. So yes, I do agree with what you're saying. In an ideal world, we would have people that would just write positive things and say good things about sport in general and be positive and everyone's doing a good job and the Wallabies are losing, but it's okay because it's, <laughs> it's, that it's just how it is. Um, but it's not like that, unfortunately. Well, mate, I think we're going to need to move on. Otherwise, we're just going to natter on about why we think this is unjust and unfair. Um, yeah. But I think it might be fitting. Did you have anything kind of closing before? Yeah, I so I've got, a, I've got a list of um, some positive things that I just wanted to quickly run through. Yeah, let's quickly roll through um, those. That people have sure. sort of overlooked in Raylene Castle's time. So mm-hmm. the first thing that um, we can we can agree that she didn't do, she didn't handle the Falao situation well. We've already spoken about that. Um, but and another thing we did speak about, she did take the, the rights, the TV rights to market. And mm-hmm. if that ends up with a better product, brilliant. Yep. If, if we lose Fox sports as an, as an option, it's not the end of the world. As long as we're still going and someone will take the rights. 
Yep. It's not going to be a situation where there's going to be no rugby on any medium. Someone will buy the rights. So I don't think that's something to worry about too much. Also, the whole pandemic. Um, one thing that no one's really talking about and that we said it as well with the... Um, she inherited the coaching setup that was in place when she came in in 2017. Now, we did speak earlier about this with Michael Checker and how she sort of managed that situation. But she came into a, an, uh, a job and an organization that was already set and he had his contracts through to 2019 mm-hmm. um, at the time. So she kind of had her hands tied in that situation. But as soon as we got rid of Michael Checker after the World Cup, she has gone ahead and signed up the new coaching staff for the Wallabies. And I would say that this new coaching staff that she has put together is the best coaching, best sort of experience and the best people for the job that we've probably had in the last five to 10 years. Yep. yep. Now, Dave Rennie does have a little bit of a an asterisk over his head in that we haven't seen him coach interna- internationally, but his success on a provincial level Yep. It goes without saying. And the fact yep. that we've brought Scott Wiseman all back home and we've got those assistant coaches underneath. And Matt Taylor as well. Yeah. And Matt Taylor, exactly. Like, the team that she has assembled is absolute class. And that's something that she's really not getting enough credit for. There has been things in the media this since she's resigned that people are saying, and I don't know if this is accurate or not, that Dave Rennie will potentially walk if Raylan Castle's not the CEO. Mm. But... On the other hand, the board has come out and said that they believe that he will honor his contract and that he will come and um, and and be the coach, regardless of if she's here yeah, or not. Yeah, plus there's a certainty for him of actually having a job and having a contract in a COVID-impacted sporting landscape. So right. the, the, having the certainty of actually having a job, plus it's his first national gig. And even though Australia is going through many issues, we're still one of the biggest rugby nations in the world. Uh, yeah. So it is a good job for him, regardless of the turmoil. And he's already put in a lot of work into um, the team and the structures that he wants to put in place when he gets here. So yeah. from all of those things, I would say summarizing everything that Raylene Castle did do a good job in her time. And it's unfortunate that yet again, she, we find ourselves in a situation where rugby has sort of bungled um, the announcement and people are leaving in sort of out the back door by themselves, disenfranchised with the whole sport, with the company. And it's just getting, it's getting a bit much. Yeah. So I think that leads us to kind of, I just want to wrap this up by saying um, if on the ever off chance that Raylene Castle was to listen to this or this to get passed on, Raylene, just from Mitch and I, we both want to say thank you. It has been in many ways a thankless job. And from what we're hearing from Paul McLean, the effort and work that you've put in over the last particularly 40 or so days, but also prior to that has been um, ad- incredibly admirable. Uh, mm-hmm. Morgan Tirunui was also talking about how Railing Castle was a huge advocate of rugby on many levels and would often come out and um, spend time with like the classic Wallabies or would go out to different kind of club level games and try and build connection there, building connection with the Western Force after everything that went on there. She was a person that was trying to unite through consensus building the different yep. elements of Australian rugby. So thank you for that, Raylene, and um, all the best for whatever job or role you have within your next job as sports administrator. Awesome. Cool. Cool, mate. Let's move on to the other pieces of news then. 
Okay, moving on to the other smaller pieces of news, um, we're going to continue with some news about Dave Rennie because we were just talking about him. So Dave Rennie has supposedly, with his coaching staff, put together a players of of national interest squad. So basically players that he and the coaching staff are keeping an eye on for future Wallabies teams. Um, There are some really interesting names in there, Mitch, such as uh, Noel Alessio. Yep. Um, Who else was it? So it was Noel Alessio. Ira Simone, Angus Bell, a uh, bunch of other players as well. But the, the big omission was Curly Beal. What do you think that of that surprising? one? <laughs> Is that really so surprising? Why would it not be that surprising? <laughs> uh, I don't think Beal's form since the end of the World Cup last year has been all that good for mm-hmm. the Waratahs. Um, he is 30-something now. 31. Um, 31. Okay. I was about to say 32, so I'm glad I didn't. Um, <laughs> he's getting towards the end of his career. And, yeah, I, I don't think he's in the form at the moment that would be – he's not putting his hand up for selection. Yeah. Now, what this article did say is whilst his form at the moment isn't doesn't have him on that list, that doesn't mean that he's completely blacklisted. Yeah, correct. Yep. He still, If he can improve his game and improve his fitness and just focus more on those few things that he's currently not quite doing or pulling off, he will definitely be looked at for his experience but he needs to lift that level of game to get back into a sort of contention. Yep. So that's not that surprising, especially considering reports of him potentially moving over to France um, at the end of the year. Yeah, exactly. A couple of the other players that were named were Angus Blythe, Jock Campbell, Harry Wilson from the Reds. So that's, they're all really exciting, particularly Harry Wilson who's been killing it. Um, And Angus Bell has been doing really, really well. So that's fantastic to see them getting a bit of recognition, even if it's not like an actual training squad call up. Yep. Simply the encouragement of knowing that they're in the view of the new national selection team, um, that's that's got to be encouraging and a great kind of uh, pump up at this current point in time. Now, it does also mention in this article that there are not any or many Waratahs players on <laughs> this list. Now, I, I would guess from what they've said in this that Angus Bell and uh, Michael Hooper would be the only ones at the moment that are putting their hands up. Yeah, I mean, the only other people you can really potentially see, you'd be thinking Jack Dempsey because of his history within the squad. Um, And then also, I mean, we'd want Harry Johnson Holmes in there because he's such a good bloke and came on the pod. Oh, we would love Um, Harry to be involved in it. (laughs) We'd love him to be involved in it, but his name isn't mentioned here. And, well, let's just see how it it all rolls out. Yeah. So I think from what the indication that we get from this this initial list is that they are, they're not really going with what we went through earlier in the year when we named our 23s, that they look like they're just going to pick the best players that they think are going to do the best job. So they're not looking at experience and they're not worrying too much about um, who has the most caps and that they're just going to play. They're just going to pick players based on their performance. So that that's exciting. We might see some, some really, we might see some, some interesting teams named later in the year, hopefully. (laughs) Well, let's wait and see with that one. So the other pieces of news as well. Um, Channel 10 have come out and slammed the RA board as for their shameful dealings with the CEO. Basically, they just didn't get any notice or update from the Rugby Australia board about some of the leadership changes. And because they're obviously in negotiations with RA with the new broadcast deal, they wanted a bit more notice. Um, I don't think we need to say much about that, really. Uh, it's just important to know that there's a little bit of news coming out from some of the broadcasters that are unhappy yeah. about 
going on? Uh, it's interesting to think if this is legitimate, um, more so than just the the outlets coming out and making saying something for the sake of it. Oh, we're not yep. too happy with how it's been handled, yada yep. yada yada. Yep. But I think if you sort of nail it down a little bit into a bit more detail, and you look at the fact that yeah, if they are if they are in intense negotiations and they were potentially about to announce the situation or announce a deal that had been struck, the fact that the board hasn't reached out and said, look, guys, this is what's happened. And they're now finding out the same as everyone else through the media and they've been put in the dark. It just makes you think, what are these board members doing? Mm -hmm. Like To me, it really seems like they've just dropped the ball in the last week or two. Or maybe they had like 30,000 people trying to text them and message them and call them <laughs> and they just couldn't get back to everybody. But you would think that one of the major broadcasters you would you're put in negotiations the board, with. Like, that's yeah. who you'd be putting forward. You'd be yeah. contacting your major sponsors. You'd be contacting your um, – and they would be the major sponsors as the negotiate the broadcasting partner. Um, yeah, those would be the two yeah. – the broadcasting partner and – because then they, uh, in that, they would also be the official media outlet, you would think, of yeah, true. Of the news. So, yeah. anyway. All right, let's move on. Your, um, can you speak to the final point about yeah, Shoot so Shield? The, the final point is just that the Shoot Shield is looking at resuming play uh, 25th of July. And at the moment, there is a final spot up for grabs. And there's two teams that look like they either of them may be included in that initial team, so in that initial spot. So, at the moment, the two teams are... The Perth Emus, uh, no Penrith Emus, sorry. <laughs> but interestingly, they do have a Perth um, sort of persuasion in that they are in talks with the Western Force. So if Perth was to come for, uh, if Penrith, <laughs> sorry, done it again, if Penrith was to be brought back into the competition, they would have the backing of the Western Force. And if there was no sort of uh, club competition national club competition that the force was playing in some of their players would be playing for penrith mm-hmm. interesting i like it the other, yeah, we'll the other see team how that goes. is the other team that is potentially looking at a spot is newcastle okay well that'll be look i'm just interested to see how this all rolls out because yeah. i think the composition of shoot shield will be up for discussion as a part of the new kind of brave new world that rugby is moving towards. So let's see how this moves on. I think that's enough for our spicy news. Yeah, so let's move into our chat now around the 2010 Bledisloe Cup in Hong Kong. All right, let's do it. Okay, in our final segment for the evening, we are going to have some fun and look at the 2010 Bledisloe Cup match. So Rugby Australia has been doing some pretty cool stuff where they are live streaming um, classic games, usually the few games that we've won against the Kiwis. <laughs> and so you there's can either watch four of them live. in the last 20 years. Yep, yep. So there's like four games. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I'm joking. <laughs> so there's a few more than that. They've been live streaming them on the Rugby Australia page and then chuck them up onto YouTube afterwards. So you can go onto YouTube, onto the Rugby Australia channel and just check them all out. So Mitch and I spent time over the weekend watching the 2010 Bledisloe Cup match. Now, I'll give you some context behind it before we get into just some comments, thoughts and ideas. We're not doing an in-depth analysis. We're just talking general impressions of the game. So Australia won 26-24 with the James O'Connor conversion after the Get Hooter had 
gone to seal the win. It was the fourth game in a Bledisloe Cup series. We had a four-game Bledisloe Cup series for some reason, um, and it was in Hong Kong. So Australia was basically on their way for the Northern Hemisphere Tour at the end of the year, and... Um, yeah, we won against them in Hong Kong in a crowd of about 25,000 people. New Zealand won the series overall. They'd already won as a dead rubber, but Australia very much celebrated the win. And it ended a 15-game winning streak that the Kiwis were on, and it prevented them from getting the world record at that point in time. So it was there was some significance to it. And Mitch, let's start off with, what were some of your general impressions of that game? This game was... Interesting on a few fronts. <laughs> First of all, I think this was the this backline that they had in 2010 is probably the best backline that I've seen for the Wallabies in the last 10 years. It was a good backline, was, wasn't it? It was they were, it was juicy. <laughs> they had <laughs> James O'Connor. Um, start Wade at nine. Cooper. Start at nine and go through. Okay, the ten. nine. I, I don't remember if everyone. Um, Will Genya nine. Quade Cooper ten. Uh, Drew Mitchell, 11. Yep. Adam Ashley Cooper was 13. Yep. Um, so it was um, Matt Giddo, 12. Matt Giddo, 12. Ashley Cooper, 13. And James O'Connor, 14. With Kirtley Beal at 15. Yep. Now, if you look at their form now, you probably think, oh, that's not such a good, not such a good back line. But this uh, was when all fast. of those players were at their peak. They were now, this, rapid. It was incredible. This was um, pre-Quade Cooper's sort of decline leading into the 2011 World Cup where he kind of faded off and his form slumped. So, mm-hmm. But he was on point in this game and all of them were. So it was really cool to see a Wallabies black line where every single player had the ability to line break. Yep, yep. So whenever they got the ball, I was just sitting there thinking – Someone's gonna like they're gonna score here. They just they make breaks, they bust tackles, they were so fast. And it's something that we haven't seen in the last ten years across the board, that level of talent since. Yeah. Yep. It was insane. I think part of the problem is that Quade Cooper has been tainted a lot since that World Cup and a lot of the issues that he had with New Zealand public afterwards. Do you remember did you see his push on Richie McCaw at the end of the game? Yeah. So that's yeah, what actually did you remember that that yeah did you remember that, that started the entire um Quade Cooper versus New Zealand that push yeah. started it um and no, so I, I forgot think... leading into this game I forgot that this particular game started it but yeah. once I started watching I realized that this was that point because all game Cooper had eyes only for McCall mm. now that mm. last incident where they scored in the corner and he's come through and pushed McCaw in the head late. That was probably the catalyst of what ended up yeah. happening later on. Yeah. But all through the game, there was instances where either Cooper would clear McCaw out of a ruck and just lay something in or put him on his ass or something um, late. Or he was every time there was a little bit of niggle, he would run straight in and aim straight for McCaw. He'd so you could tell that there was something something yeah. premeditated there that yep. he wanted and that, this is where it all started yeah so anyway like that we've got quade cooper at his enigmatic best in this game he's throwing some amazing passes his ability to pass the ball with width at pace in front of the runner to force them to sprint onto the ball to get that forward movement was just incredible 
But he then also did some horrific kicks, missed touch a bunch of times, yeah. um, gave away two or three turnovers from like losing the ball in a tackle, uh, a couple of drop balls. Like he had some incredible moments of the game. And then it just made you remember this is what he can do in a positive and in a very negative way. So you can understand why subsequent coaches were looking for someone that was more reliable. Yeah. It was interesting watching it. I would caught myself thinking in about the 50th minute, uh, Beric Barnes was warming up on the bench. Yeah. And uh, why, why is Cooper still out there? He should have been pulled yeah. 10 minutes ago. Like he probably should have been replaced at half time because as the game went on, Australia got themselves out to a fairly handy lead. I think they were 14 or 16 points up. Um, and then towards the end of the first half and then the start of the second half, New Zealand sort of clawed back. And the then usual two the tries lead. inside of half time. Yep. That's right. And then took the lead. Um, Australia hung on and did really well to claw that lead back and score right on the, on the bell to win the game. But Cooper really wasn't leading the back line as well as he could have been. Yeah. Um, at that point, and that's probably where they should have pulled him a little bit earlier, when the All Blacks were dominating and the Wallabies started to sort of push push away a bit. But interestingly enough, they didn't actually replace Cooper. They yep. replaced Gitto. Yep. Now, Gitto came off in, and Beric Barnes went into 12, and he was he he pulls he made a difference. Like he was making line breaks and he was sort of leading the play around. It was interesting that they didn't do that earlier. Yeah, I think um, one of the things that just surprised me, and you mentioned it earlier, was just the incredible speed by which the Australians attacked. But what that also led to um, was by having these players that were so focused on an attacking game is, well, um, Drew Mitchell isn't a particularly strong tackler. Um, James O'Connor at the time was pretty small, so he wasn't the best kind of stand-up tackler. Kirtley Beale has never been a good tackler along with Quade Cooper. So you've got four players in the back line who are weak defenders having to go up against Ma Nonu in his prime. And every single time Nonu got the ball, well, nearly every single time he got the ball, he would be beating that first tackle. Yeah. And uh, your comment about Beric Barnes, when he came on, the first thing he did, ball not ball and all tackle, but he took Nonu down, around yeah. the legs, grabbed hold, didn't let go. And he kept doing it again and again. And he, he didn't shut Nonu down. Nonu was still dangerous, but he was making the tackles. He wasn't yeah. dropping off those first up tackles. And it just showed the difference in a type of player that I think, um, look, obviously Deans was going for a particular attacking philosophy uh, within that game. But it, it just showed some of the weaknesses that I think Australian rugby had at that time in their first up defence. Well, Curtly Beal pulled off a number of, of impressive try-saving tackles in the first half. When Australia was on the front foot and going forward, Curtly Beal was playing really, really well. Yep. There's one incident where he's done it a number of times since. And I think in 2014, similar kind of thing. When, he, when the team that he's playing for is going forward and doing well, he plays better. Yep. Um, and so one of the players, I think it was Conrad Smith, made a breakthrough. He's done this all-encompassing all tackle. He's just wrapped him up completely and yep. then held him up over the try line. Yep. It was it was really good to see because there's in the part in since then that he's just let that try in. <laughs> um, now Look, one one other point that yep. I I noticed by watching this game was that Australia's kicking oh. was horrendous. 
missed the first three shots on goal, two penalties and a conversion. And then in the second half, we, we there was a sequence of play around about the 60th minute-ish where there were three kicks where they were trying to get territory. So I wanted to bounce into field of play, then go out, and it found the touch three times in a row. And I was just kind of sitting here knowing we were winning, but it's going, how are we winning this? Like, yeah. our kicking is horrific. Now, well, I think there on the day there was definitely issues with kicking for both sides. Yeah, there was a really the strong commentators, wind, The commentators were saying that due to the way the, the stadium is built on a, on the side of the cliff or the side of the hill, that the wind swells funny, which okay. was definitely affecting the Wallabies kicking. And Dan Carter actually missed a few as well, So, yeah. which is uncharacteristic of him. So I think that they did have issues. But in this game, so um, Matt Guido started kicking and he missed three. Then they moved Sequade Cooper to kick and he missed two. Then they finished off with um, James O'Connor kicking. Yep. And so James O'Connor was the one that finally nailed the kick at the at the end to win the game. But they should not have been in that position. They should have been up. <laughs> like the kicks that they missed were pretty easy kicks. They were pretty um, achievable, hey? So they should have been up by another 15 points or something. Yeah. It's, yeah, look, let's not talk about kicking issues. I think we spoke about it enough when we were looking at kind of the Reds games earlier this season. But um, I guess... One thing we can say is that in 10 years, we haven't improved our kicking game. Our <laughs> we general just need to bring field... Mike Harris back. That's it. Just bring Mike Harris back and he'll kick Although, Guido did improve going into the World Cup in 2015. Yeah, when he came back, his kicking had improved. Now, maybe that's because he spent some time over in Europe. Who knows? But what was your One take the on the scrums points. in this game? That's exactly where I was going, mate. So, Perfect. scrums. Scrums were an absolute joke. Um, it was a complete lottery who was getting the like rewards within the penalties. Um, the the it was Alain Roland, the yeah. French ref. He um he seemed to just be calling anything with no real understanding of why. And he, he would he would blow for the penalty for the team, but then not do any gestures for why like New Zealand had won that penalty, or sometimes why Australia won the penalty, and. I'm so glad they've changed the laws about the engagement. Yeah. Uh, it, because so many times the scrum, the front rows would come together and because of the f- force of the impact would just collapse time and time again. And there was no stability because of that. So I think it's a really, really good thing that they've shifted up the way that the scrums actually work. Yeah, that was one thing particularly that I picked up. I didn't think that 2010 seemed that long ago, but watching the game now compared to then the game has changed like the sport in general has changed dramatically mm-hmm. um the set pieces have completely changed there's so many different focuses on scrummaging or the breakdown that the breakdown in this game in 2010 was just a mess it, it was, was a joke. unstructured it was yep. so unstructured like the all blacks who were number one in the world at the time they didn't seem to have any plan around the breakdown so they would sort of just all dive in and fall over the, all over the place. It just seemed like a mess. In saying that, though, Australia as a forward pack were very um, non-dominant at the breakdown. So I think Pocock was playing in this game, and he probably got three or four turnovers, yep. which isn't a lot. But apart from Pocock, there wasn't really anyone else that was going at the ball. And the sort of pilfer situation that we have so prolific now wasn't a thing back then. 
They were more driving over the top of the ruck rather than trying to go for direct mall. So you had you had Pocock going for turnovers and he was doing yeah. that really well. But yeah, a lot of the time it was just kind of throw bodies over the top, sometimes get pinged for sealing it off, and then sometimes have the ball pop back on your side. And if the ball's back on your side, it's okay. You obviously got it illegally or something. So yeah. it was just it's just amazing to see how it's the game has progressed. And I think in a way it's better because you actually understand I, I believe you can understand most of the time what's going on in a ruck now. Yeah. yeah. Um, most most of the time. Whereas in this game, it's just a mess. Bodies just flying everywhere, and you got no idea what's actually going on. The amount of times that freaking um, it reminded me how much I hated McCaw when he played. He <laughs> just came in the side so many times. He got pinged for it a few. Um, but, but that, the other thing too that that was sort of it was like the referee remembered all of a sudden that he had to address that. So he'd, yeah. he'd call it every now and then, but every it was happening at every breakdown. Yeah. And nine nine times out of ten, he'd just let it go. Yeah. And every now and then, he'd pull it up. It's pretty funny just watching back. Um, how good is James O'Connor's hair in 2010? <laughs> he just looks like... You understand why he used to cop a lot of flack for being this kind of like poster child, um, almost like model kind of thing. He's a good-looking like, guy, and his hair was incredible. Like a styled Justin Bieber. Yeah, yeah. How good is it? <laughs> <laughs> um, and the ice that he had in his veins, because he kicked a penalty um, prior to the try as well from out on the sideline and then did the final conversion to win the game. And he, they were both really, really hard kicks, and yet he got them and they were straight through the middle. So yeah. massive kudos to him. That was incredible. Yeah, brilliant. Really, what, 20, 21 at the time? I think it was 20. 20. Yeah. Twenty. Yeah. Yeah. Any final thoughts on the game, mate? Before we wrap it up, it was just good to see um, the Wallabies with some punch in the back line. I mm. think the team that we currently have, or we had in the 2019 World Cup end of last year, that back line didn't look settled at all. And apart from one or two players who, like Korobedi or um, Tamua, sometimes had the ability to take the line on and, and make that space or make that break. It happens every now and then. In this back line, every time they one of those players got the ball, I was expecting them to go full field. Like yeah. that try that Adam Ashley Cooper scored, which I think was the second try of the game, he got the ball from a line out in the middle of the field and went th- full straight through the center of the field, untouched, and scored under the posts. Yep. It was phenomenal. He had no right to score that try. Um, but you, we don't see that now. I wonder if that's because of the nature, the improved nature of defensive systems. So I was looking at a lot of Quade Cooper's game and trying to figure out what was so effective about it, particularly the speed and the width at which he was passing. And I just am thinking or theorizing that maybe it's because of the, basically every single team or at least or, or national teams will play a blitz defense. And they will just rush up in the face of the defense and give the 10 absolutely no time at all to be able to choose their target and to get the ball away. Or even if the pass does get away, that person then gets tackled ball and all and the ball dies in that moment. Yeah. And I just wonder if defensive systems are different at this in 2010, yeah, which is giving the players more time on the ball. And that's giving people like Cooper, because with that one with Asher Cooper, I looked at it again to figure out how did he get through that? But it's because Cooper is passing it flat and has three runners that he's choosing from. And he plays it part across the face of the first two Australian runners 
to Ashley Cooper as the yeah. third. And Cooper then makes a really nice, right before he's, um, Ashley Cooper makes a really nice change <laughs> of direction right before Quade Cooper passes the ball, which gets him on the outside shoulder of yeah. the defender. And he just blasts through the hole there. Straight through, yeah. Exactly. So I think it's a combination of, um, I th- I, personally, I think it's down to changing defensive systems. Yeah, cool. Anyway, Good my ball. final thought was um, really fun, really incredibly potent attacking backline from the Wallabies, but they just sacrificed any defensive integrity to be able to achieve that. Yeah. Um, and it shows you what I think Australian rugby at some in some ways is lacking, which is genuine pace, absolute yeah. genuine pace. And I wonder if that's why someone like maybe Tom Banks getting introduced to the Wallabies set up sooner rather than later could be a really good addition because that's something that he does bring is just electrifying pace. Um, out on the field. So, anyway, that's would it you, for um, me. Would you bring that back line forward to the to today's game? Uh, like, in that form? In that form? Um, probably not. I'd, I'd be changing Cooper out. I yep. Like, obviously, he is an incredibly talented person and player. Um, so, if you swap Barnes with Cooper, because Barnes had the tackling ability? Yeah, yeah. That'd be a pretty good team, wouldn't it? Yeah, one thing one thing I did did message to you was that I thought the forward pack in this game wasn't as dominant as our forward pack now. Yeah, whether that whether that is from um, the way the the scrum and the breakdown was refereed and it was just a a lottery, or the fact that the game has changed now to be much more on the ball attacking at the breakdown, which I think our forward pack now is structured for. Um, I think. Having that back line now with our forward pack now would probably be the team that would get us deep into a World Cup. We can only dream. Yeah. We can only dream. Well, anyway, I think that's enough in that game, especially especially since we natted on so much about everything with Rugby Australia. So why don't we call it there? Awesome. Well, thank you for joining us for episode nine of the Pick and Drive Rugby podcast. We're going to leave it there for this week. I think we've rattled on enough about Raylene Castle and uh, <laughs> former Wallabies victories. Uh, next week, we're going to open it up to a bit of a Q&A session for our fans. So we've we've put some stuff on social media in the following weeks, and we've asked for some questions of what you'd like to hear us talk about. We've got a few things we've come through, but... If you've got any ideas you'd like us to chat about, hit us up on social media. We'd love to hear from you. Um, so, yeah. Anything yeah, thank you'd like you. to say about next week? Yeah, yeah. Thank you to everybody that's already posted. We have like three, four things we're already going to be covering. Um, it's going to be a bit of a quick fire back and forth section. So we're not going to kind of go in as much detail as we sometimes would or as much depth about different topics. But we just want to cover a wide range of audience questions and audience things that you would like to hear so please let us know what you would like to hear and we'll dive into it cool well thanks for joining us um we also just wanted to mention that we have our videos up of the podcast on youtube now so we will put that link up on our social media pages this week as well if that's your preferred method of listening to us awesome well thanks mitch been a pleasure to be here thank you ando and we'll um catch everyone next week see you next week see you guys Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Pick and Drive Rugby Podcast. You can follow us on social media at the following outlets. 
Follow our Facebook page at Pick and Drive Rugby Podcast. Send us a tweet at at pick underscore drive rugby. Follow our Instagram at pick underscore drive underscore rugby. Or send us an email at pickanddriverugby at gmail.com. We'd love to hear any questions or feedback you may have, so get in touch. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next week.